Uh, one quick announcement before we get going. Um, Crosspoint Kids next week is going to be joining us for a family ministry Sunday. Fifth Sunday of the month, which only happens three or four times a year, uh, will be all Crosspoint Kids from kindergarten through fifth grade in service with us. And so parents, listen, this is not a Sunday where you just don't show up, by the way. I'm going to have my kids right there in the front row with me and you will watch them go to the bathroom 27 times. Um, and it's okay. Like we're, we're, This is judgment-free zone. I'm, I'm asking for your grace as a parent, and we're going to give you grace as a parent. And if you don't have kids, it's okay to you know how to pray for parents uh, after next Sunday. And so um, we're looking forward to that fifth Sunday together. It is, it is important that we exemplify faithful worship for our children. Can, can I tell you that, parents? It's, ex, it's important that we exemplify, exemplify faithful worship worship to our children. And so what we're going to do on these fifth Sundays is exemplify. Here's me devoting myself as your father or your mother to the Lord and his teaching. And so we know that they might not completely track with us the whole time. And we're going to be aware of that as we plan the service. But at the same time, uh, it's okay. God is going to teach them through your example. And so uh, fifth Sunday, of every, uh, when we, whenever we have a month that has a fifth Sunday, that's what we're going to do. And uh, it's our way of saying, Ryan uh, and our kids ministry team, that's Ryan Ravish, by the way. Uh, Ryan and our kids ministry team, we are supporting you by nurturing and training up our children in the admonition of the Lord. And uh, we are going to come alongside you as parents in a greater way with our kids. So uh, that's coming up next Sunday, and I am looking forward to that with my kids as well. Uh, And so we are continuing our series in the book of Hebrews entitled Jesus is Greater. And this week is Jesus is Greater Than Moses. My girls have been watching the Barbie TV show uh, on Netflix, and and I, I don't like the Barbie TV show. Uh, it's it's uh, one of the annoying shows. Uh, I think everybody's way too pretty on there. And uh, But anyway, the girls really like this show. And, and one of the things they say very often in the show is, duh. And so I hear my girls saying, duh. And so when I talk about Jesus being greater than Moses, it's like, Jesus is greater than Moses. Well, duh. Jesus is greater than Moses. Um And is that even debatable right now? I mean, why is that even a question in the reader's minds that Jesus is greater than Moses? I want to transport us into the first century Jewish Christian. Get us wrapping around, wrapping our mind around what it must have been like to, to be a young Jewish boy or young Jewish girl growing up in the faith in that time period. In the time period that Christ has just come, And you have a new faith, a newfound faith in Jesus Christ, one that doesn't reject Judaism or the Old Testament, but one that embraces it, because you know that the Old Testament is the promise given, and the New Testament is the fulfillment of that promise, and the fulfillment of that promise has come through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. But you're still holding on to some of the things of faith and you're learning and you're growing. And part of your learning process is that Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, you don't have you don't have iPads and iPhones to to give to your kids when they get bored. 
You don't have those things that, that, that we have today that would distract our kids and allow us to focus on what we need to focus on so that they can be unfocused for a little while. I'm guilty of that as a parent. But, but one of the ways that you, you raised your kids up in those days was you told them the stories of faith. You told them the stories of your fathers. You, still, you told them these stories and, and, and they had the Moses action figure. Right? At big fiery beard and, 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 and piercing eyes. And then they had the evil Pharaoh. And they just went at it, man, with Moses and Pharaoh. And you had the David and Goliath action figure. And the kids played with that. And that's what they wanted for Christmas after Christmas came. And, and it was not Hanukkah anymore. They wanted that for Christmas. And they wanted those toys to play with. Or, 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 or when, when they were with their friends, it was... Let's reenact the battle of David and Goliath. Or, or, or let's reenact the, the Pharaoh coming after Moses when he's between the Red Sea and he takes his staff and he opens up the waters and they go through on dry land. And after they get through on dry land, the waters come down on Pharaoh and the enemies of God. Moses was a pretty cool deal, wasn't he? Pretty amazing guy. Faithful, says the author of Hebrews. He was a faithful servant of God. But Jesus is greater than that. Now, apparently, the Jesus action figure wasn't outselling the Moses action figure in that time. I mean, you, you got Moses with a fiery beard and piercing eyes, and you got Jesus nailed to a cross. I mean, how amazing is that? Isn't Moses greater than Jesus? Because Moses did some things that are seemingly more incredible than Jesus. Because the reality of what Christ has done and who he is hasn't yet sunk into their hearts. And what's true about you and what's true about me today is the same that's true about the, this ancient Hebrew Christian culture. The reality of Jesus is not sunken into our hearts. Because we consider other things more significant and more important than Jesus. We consider other things more significant, more important, or greater than Jesus Christ. And the author here is calling us to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. He's very redundant, by the way. He's done this from chapter 1, chapter 2, the same thing. You know your kids are in... in, in Sunday school, and the Sunday school teacher asks him a question. He says, what's furry, lives in a tree, eats acorns, has a big fluffy tail. Kid raises his hand, he says, Jesus. <laughs> That's like us. The answer is Jesus. Jesus. Always in church, the answer is Jesus. And maybe that feels redundant. Maybe that feels impractical. Maybe you feel like that doesn't have anything to do with my life today. But it does. It has everything to do with your life. If you don't consider Christ, you are making the main thing more significant. And the main things aren't the main things. At the end of time, you're going to get to the end of your life and you're going to say, what have I put on the pedestal? What have I put on the platform? What have I arranged my life all around? And you're going to get to the end of your life and you're going to say, it wasn't worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. And that's what the author of Hebrews intends to do with his audience. And that's what I pray the Holy Spirit does with us today. Is there's a reorientation of our life around Jesus. To consider him. Not intellectually with our heads. Not with knowledge. Not from a distance, but up close. 
that we would pay attention to him. And that's the warning that this author gives in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we, may, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. If you're not considering Christ, you're drifting away from Him. If you're not considering Christ, you are drifting away from Him. It might be with a swift current, or you might be slowly drugged out to sea and you don't even realize it. But there is no standing still in the Christian faith. You are either moving forward by faith, or you are slipping back into faithlessness. And that's the danger for every Christian. It was the danger then and it's the danger now. It's the danger I face as well. And it's the one that we must be keenly aware of so that God can move powerfully in our hearts and use us as faithful servants like Moses who take our cues from King Jesus. So consider Christ. Matt Chandler has this quote. I want us to, I want us to meditate on that quote for a moment. He says, To be a disciple of Jesus Christ... By the way, when I say that word disciple, it's simply the the word Christian. To be a Christian. To be a disciple of uh, of Jesus Christ. It's not like you're some kind of superhero, you're kind of special category of Christian. A, A follower of Christ is a disciple. So he says, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means not that we believe some things intellectually, but that we've surrendered our lives over to his lordship. Anything less than that is not biblical Christianity. It is something of your imagination. So, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ doesn't just mean that we verbally confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. No, Jesus says, let he who has ears, let him hear. And it's one of the most repeated passages in the Bible. You see it again in Revelation. Let he who has ears, let him hear. That it's not just about the faith of our fathers or our parents or that Christianity was something that I just kind of grown into or fell into. It's that there's been a conversion of my heart to where I belong to Him. He is my Lord. I take my cues from Him. Everything that I do is in obedience to Him. I want to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. And that would be my worship and adoration of him. Either Jesus means everything to you or he means nothing. That's what Matt Chandler is saying here. And and friends, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, he means everything. And that we would all jump on that wavelength together. So this passage unpacks three aspects of Jesus that we're going to peer into today. Number one, Jesus the faithful. Jesus the faithful. Number two, Jesus the architect. Or the builder. And number three is Jesus the Son. Number one, Jesus the faithful. Four times in these short six verses, the word faithful is mentioned. Faithful. Uh, It's not uh, very much an attribute that we look on with our culture in an admiration of. Someone who's faithful. But Jesus was faithful. And there's this comparison that in contrast that happens between Moses and Jesus. And it's not like the Miami Dolphins versus the New York Jets, even though we all know that the Miami Dolphins are much better than the New York Jets. (laughs) 
You don't have to prove that Moses is less than in order to prove that Jesus is greater. No, Moses has high esteem in the Christian viewpoint. We regard Moses highly. We regard David highly. We regard these founders and fathers of our faith to be incredible people. And we don't have to put them down in order to say that Jesus is greater. But what the, what the author is saying is Jesus is incomparably greater than any of the prophets. Of which Moses they considered the top. And so Jesus is incomparably more faithful than Moses. Moses was a faithful servant. Moses did some incredible things in, in, in obedience. I mean, could you imagine taking these Israelites who have been captive for 400 years? You're on the cusp of taking them from the brink of slavery. And then you're in the middle of the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh. What do you do? You pray. You depend on God. You say, God, what are you going to do? And God says, take that staff and command the sea to part. And that's what it does. That's faithfulness. He was faithful in obedience to the Lord Jehovah. Jesus was perfectly faithful. Moses, even in his incredible faithfulness, was not perfect in his faithfulness. If you read the story of the first five books of the Bible, you see that Moses wasn't perfectly faithful. In fact, he was the one that pinned those books. So he was very honest about himself. But Jesus was faithful to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so there's a faithfulness by which God gives us this picture of what Jesus Christ did for us in that faithfulness. And, and the, the, the amazing thing about Jesus is he, when he was faithful to God, it didn't mean that he was less faithful to us. His perfection in faithfulness meant that he could be perfectly faithful to God as his king. And he could be perfectly faithful to us as the children of God. They don't go in competition with one another. When God is glorified... And we glorify God. You you think that somehow you have to take some hits for that. That somehow if God's glorified, it means you're going to miss out on something else. No, no. God's glory and your good are never in competition with one another. So Jesus stood in the gap of faithfulness as the high priest, he says here, between God and man. And God is glorified and mankind is redeemed. That's what the high priest did. That's why he says, Holy brothers. Holy brothers. The word holy means that you've been cleansed. It means that you've been washed. It means that you were made pure. It also means that you're in pursuit of this holiness. There's this interesting thing about holiness by which we don't earn it, we don't receive it, we don't get it by our own strength, but we pursue it. God gives it to us by what He has done for us, but we also are in pursuit of holiness. Because we want to be a cleansed and purified people. It's this tension that we live in. That, that yes, we are holy because of what Christ has done. And what Christ has done makes us desire purity and holiness and blamelessness. That, that's what it means to walk in obedience. To desire that holiness. And he says, holy brothers. Or God's family. 
You can actually put the word brothers and sisters in here. Or you could read it the way the author meant it to be read. Because when he says brothers, he's not just talking about men. He's talking about the family. So he's not leaving women out. He's including them. And, and I'm, I'm convinced that Jesus did more for women than anybody in history. Because what Jesus Christ did for women is he enabled them to be given the full rights and access and privileges as sons. Which was absolutely unheard of in that day. That a woman would have the full rights and privileges and access to God as sons. He did that for you women. Like, like God esteems you highly women. I mean, we, we live in a, a world and a culture that, you know, disregards women. I mean, just in the news over the last few weeks, you see it in Hollywood. And you see, it's not just one isolated incident by one person, but it's actually a needle and a thread that's going to come unraveled. And we have to be very, very careful that we don't bring the way the world objectifies humanity into the church, but that the church is cleansed and washed and redeemed and women are treated differently and they're given positions of, of great, great faithfulness in the church. And God is doing that. Even in Crosspoint downtown, God is doing that. So God, through being the sending His Son Jesus Christ as our High Priest, it means that He also stands in the gap perfectly between God and men. It means that He became a man and He knows hurt. He knows pain. He knows heartbreak. He knows brokenness. He knows death. He knows distress. He knows loneliness. It's hard to feel close to God when you're lonely, isn't it? You've never been through loneliness like Christ. And he went through that loneliness so that you would never be alone. So that you would always know that God knows. And God cares. And God's there and there's nothing between you and him. One of the best pictures that I have for this is, is on Saturday mornings, Carrie and I, we like to sleep in. That means instead of waking up at 5.30, we wake up at 6.30. Um, if you've got young kids, you know what that means. And so the kids will often get anxious and frustrated because they want something to do. I mean, it's like you got to like entertain them like all the time. I got kids that are six and eight. So if you got younger ones, look forward to that age range. They just get more expensive and harder to entertain. So I'm just kidding. There's some things that get better. Um, but uh, 630 in the morning, they, they come in and, and, and they, they just crawl right in bed with mom and dad. Like, how dare they do that? They just crawl right in. They just get right under the blankets. They just come right in. No, no personal space. No, this is my space and this is your space. They just crawl right in and they just snuggle in and it feels so good. Like, I love it. I love my, my kids just coming right in and, and coming close. Now, it doesn't matter if they got into a fight with us the night before. It doesn't matter if they went to bed with a spanking. They know the next day, 6.30 in the morning, they're going to come in and they're going to snuggle up right next to mom and dad because we're one. Like, we're one as the family of God. And, and that's what Jesus Christ has done. He's saying, I've taken away every barrier from you. 
I've taken away every sin that has kept you at arm's distance from God. I have taken away all those barriers so that you can come right into the chest, to the bosom of God and find comfort and hope and healing and that you would know that God is there. Like he takes the God that feels a million miles away and he puts him right in front of us. That's what Jesus did. And he says, come in family to the dinner table. One day we're going to experience this in heaven, and it's going to be absolutely amazing. One day in heaven, there's going to be this big, giant table, and we are going to enjoy fellowship with one another without any hindrances of, I got this against you, or I got that against you, or any hindrance between before God. We are going to weep tears of joy because we're going to tell stories of God's deliverance of our lives, and His power and dominion over our hearts, and how good it feels to finally be with Him in His presence forever. He's going to bring us close. That's what Jesus did as our high priest. He's also our apostle. means that He's the sent one. He's the one that God sent to tell of the heavenly calling. He's the one that opens our hearts to receive and believe that there's a world bigger than the world that we're living in. And there's a heavenly calling that we've been set up for. That, that this world, with all of its brokenness, with all of its death, with all of its sin, and even in the beauty of this world, the grit and the grace, God shows us that there's a world far better, and we are just pilgrims here. This is just a colony where we've set up camp for a little while set up camp for King Jesus and we're staking our claim for Him. We are That confession of the Lord is one with us, but God is going to take us to His heavenly gates where our lives will be made perfect and we will be there for all eternity. And I'm telling you, friends, it will blow your ever-loving mind. And it will happen again and again and again. So, so why do you think that Moses is better than Jesus? Because Jesus gives us all that. That's, Jesus is faithful. He is faithful. Number two, he is the architect. He's the builder. He's the designer from start to finish. Hebrews 2.10, if you look at it, says, if you flip one page, oh, uh, actually it's just at the top of my, uh, my Bible, for it was fitting that he, whom, for, whom, for, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The author of Hebrews is repeating himself here. He is the one who started this whole thing. Paul says it this way. He says, the one who started the work of your salvation is the one who completes the work of your salvation. The one who justifies you is the one who sanctifies you. The one who gave you life in the first place is the one who sees to it that that life is always in you. He is the architect. He is the designer of God's house. Let's move our minds away from the personal reality of Jesus and let's think about the corporate reality of Jesus for the church. Because you are not God's house in and of yourself. You are a part of God's house. You are are not like God's finished product by yourself. No, God is building the 
church. He is building a people, a people that will sing of his glorious grace. The church is so much a part of the story of God. You can't, you can't erase these parts of the Bible, but the church is messy. The church is a place where we have to deal with sin in ourselves and with one another and we're confronted by it by others and we've got to confront it in others and sometimes it can be a real stinky mess. Last week I talked about Noah, Noah's ark and I said I said you, you know Noah and his family that the ark must have really stunk. It must have really stunk so bad that they wanted to get out, but if they did get out they were dead. And that's the way it is with the church. Like, if you don't want to be a part of it, then it's like falling into the waters and having no way out. Because God has set up a way of redemption for the church. He doesn't save us individually to himself. He saves us as a family, brothers and sisters in Christ, the body of Christ. And he designed it that way. He is the builder. Moses was a tool. Moses was a tool. God used Moses in an amazing way. Think about Moses at the burning bush. God appeared to Moses through the fire in the bush in the form of an angel. And he said, Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to tell him, let my people go. What was Moses' response? Send somebody else. Moses was a tool. Moses was Moses because Jesus is Lord. That's why we know Moses is because Christ was his king. It wasn't Moses that parted the Red Sea. He was just a faithful, obedient tool. It wasn't Moses who made the plagues come down on Egypt so that they would be set free. Moses was used as a tool. And he walked into some freaky situations, ready to lose his life. But God saved him and God protected him. Church, listen, you are a tool. You're you're a stone in the house. You're a brick in the house. Moses is a stone in the house that God uses but Jesus is the architect. Nope, none, no one of us are designing this thing. The Holy Spirit is producing this church. I mean, we look about the, the, the room today in the church, and, and you are here because God have, has called you here. And, and the interesting thing about it, after two years in the church, is I never would have thought any of you would be in the room. And this is amazing. Because God is building the church. Nobody can take credit for that. Moses can't take pre- credit for that. Because Jesus himself says... That he is building the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Verse 3. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. as As much more glory as the builder of a house that has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone. But the builder of all things is God. God is the builder And Jesus Christ is God. And Jesus is the builder of the house. He is the architect. If you know anything about architecture in America, you know the name Frank Lloyd Wright. You heard of Frank Lloyd Wright before? He's probably one of the most famous architects today in the world, certainly in our country. He was born two years after the Civil War. He was born in rural America. He's a story of stories. You hear about this man, Frank Lloyd Wright, and and you think, how is this humble man able to achieve such greatness in the way of architecture. And, and, and Frank Lloyd Wright was most well known because his style of architecture so uniquely blended in the elements of the building into the surrounding features 
of the area by where it was built. So one of the most famous was the Falling Waters building. You guys seen that? I have a picture of the Falling Waters. There's that. Isn't that, isn't that cool? Just a beautiful setting, serene setting, and the building just seamlessly flows into it. He was so well known for that. The cool part about his design and building of this was that he did it in his retirement days where, where you think that he's getting out of touch. But today, if you've got a Frank Lloyd Wright, even style home, not even designed by him, like it's a prized possession. The windows and everything are so unique. But the thing we know about Falling Waters is Frank Lloyd Wright, but almost nothing else. We don't know who the foreman was or any of the craftsmen were. We don't know who was installing the windows even though those windows are absolutely amazing. We don't know who did that incredible stone work there. We don't know those people because they're tools. But we know Frank Lloyd Wright because he was the builder. He was even, design, he was even involved in picking out the furniture of the house, but he didn't do it all. There were others involved in it. It's God with his church has, has designed the church in such a way that the Holy Spirit would use Broken, sinful people to build it. And and you may slip off into a a humble memory or maybe no memory of itself. But the fact that God would use you in the church to glorify Him and to give glory to Him is what our life is all about. That we would be tools and stones of the great architect, King Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. Think about that. Jesus was a living stone rejected by men. But in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, like he is our priest, we are his priesthood, standing in the gap between God and men, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God uses broken people to build his church on the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. It's the stone that was tripped over by the Jews. Rejected by them. They were looking for it, but they couldn't find it. And all the while it was right in front of them because they tripped on it about a dozen times. That's the stone that they said, no, that's not a good stone. Let's use Moses as a stone. Let's Moses, let's build this on Moses. Why would we build it on a crucified king? It's a paradox. It doesn't make sense that God would build his church on a crucified Messiah. That the Son of God would find himself nailed to a tree. The Bible says, cursed is everyone that hanged on a tree. But Jesus took the curse so that we might see the glory. That's what the architect did. He designed it. Jesus himself says that no one takes his life from him, but he freely gives it. It's of his own choosing. It didn't happen by accident. It happened because God had planned from the foundations of the world that the architect, the founder of our faith, would be crucified so that the house would be built, the church. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? We have a 
place and a plan. That God has a place and a plan for us in His church. I want to offer you this warning. Don't place people on a pedestal where they don't belong. Okay, listen, don't place people on a pedestal where they don't belong. Don't place leaders on a pedestal where they don't belong. Don't place pastors. Don't place husbands or wives. Don't place people on a pedestal where they don't belong. Moses was not meant to be on the pedestal where these Hebrew Christians were putting him. Just like there are people that don't belong on the pedestal where you are putting them today. You are setting them up for failure and you're setting yourself up for failure when you put someone else on the pedestal where only Jesus belongs. And I want you to ask you just a few questions in order to, in order to get our, our mind thinking, are we doing this? One, ask the question, who am I frustrated at right now? You, Ryan. Well, the, don't put me on the pedestal. Um, who are you frustrated at right now? Who are you angry at? Who are you... Uh, who hasn't lived up to your expectations? Who's maybe failed you in some way and you've, you've not been able to forgive them? The other side of this is who are you trying to please? Who are you constantly trying to make happy to get to notice you? Whose approval are you constantly chasing after? Ask yourself that question. Who's the person that you need to hear affirm you the most? And when they don't, it absolutely crushes you. I hope that reveals a person and that you can walk in repentance of that and maybe even have a healthy conversation with them about your forgiveness or even ask them for their forgiveness. Because we put leaders on the pedestal, we're setting them up for failure and we're setting ourselves up for failure because only Christ belongs there. You know, there's a great danger that I have in standing up in this pulpit every Sunday. And the great danger is one day that I might be disqualified. I might not have run the race well. Well, how do I know that I'm going to run the race well? I don't know unless I just run it and I endure. And that's the last part of what the author of Hebrews is talking about. Jesus is the son who's run the race perfectly from start to finish on your behalf. So hold on to him. Moses was the servant, but Christ is king. Jesus has run the race well from start to finish, even though he was suf- even though he suffered, was tempted, and died. He obeyed God perfectly to the point of death and death on the cross. Moses was all about preparing the way for the Lord. Because Jesus is the heir. That's what, when we say that Jesus is the son, it means that Jesus is the heir. Jesus is the one whom the world completely belongs to. That wasn't Moses. Moses didn't own everything, a, a cattle on a thousand hills. But Jesus, through his crucifixion, bought everything back to God. And he showed that his sacrifice was worthy of God's acceptance. Because he rose again. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He's not in the grave today. You can't find his body. Muhammad, he's got a tomb. Any of the other prophets, they got a tomb. But Jesus, no, he resurrected. The grave wasn't even his to belong with. He just borrowed it from Joseph of Arimathea. And now the grave is empty. The tomb is empty because Christ is risen. He's the Son. 
And it shows that he is the owner of all things. And so Moses was all about Jesus because Jesus is the one who owned it. Jesus was Moses' master. And Moses was Jesus' faithful servant. Everything Moses said, he said about Christ. That's quoted from Jesus himself. Jesus is the Son. And he's redeemed you and me and our beloved church today for God's purposes so that we might find our place in history in being tools and stones and bricks for God's house. So don't hold fast to Moses. And you're like, duh, why would I do that? Don't hold fast to anything greater than Christ. Don't put anyone else on the pedestal. And don't try to put yourself on the pedestal for others. Because Christ is worthy of a greater honor and glory than you are. And if you try to chase after that, you're only going to find yourself disheartened, discouraged, and disappointed. Because you never deserved it. And it wasn't meant to be that way. That our lives would be testifying the reality of the marvelous light of King Jesus. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting in our hope. Are you holding fast your confidence in Christ today? Right now, are you holding it fast? Are you clinging to him? Realizing that if you're not holding him with hands gripped tight, then you're drifting away. Are you faithful? Like Jesus is faithful. Are you faithful? Do you know what testifies of the reality of of a faithful marriage? My faithful marriage right now? My my wife is sitting right here. That's what testifies of the faithfulness of my marriage. Now, I've had ups and downs in our marriage. We've had to get counseling in our marriage. We've had hard times. Heck, sometimes we've had a fight this past week. but, But we hold fast to one another. We're enduring together. The challenges of marriage. And, and, and that I don't want to just be true of today. But I want it to be true when I've got gray hairs and I've got hairs coming out of my nose and my kids are taking care of me. I want that to be true forever. That we would be marked by our faithfulness. It's not perfection, it's faithfulness. Are you holding on to God faithfully? You won't hold on to Him perfectly. That's why you run to the cross. But are you holding on to him faithfully? Because the true test of Christianity is this. That you endure. That you persevere. A true Christian is one that clings to the cross and runs the race well. And say like Paul, I have finished the race. I've run it well. When Paul wrote his letter to Timothy, he didn't boast in his church planning skills. He didn't boast in the amount of disciples that he made. He didn't boast in those things. He says, I have run the race well. And to hear the words of God, when we get to glory, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've run the race well. You've made your life all about me. Can we be a church that says that and lives that way? And encourages one another to press on in that way. Kent Hughes has this quote. He says, Continuance in the Christian life, holding on is the test of real faith. 
The writer fears that some of the storm-tossed church will not persevere. The Holy Spirit thus asks us, are you persevering? Or in the jostling tides of life, are you drifting away? Is Christ as dear as the first day you met him, or even more dear? Are you holding on to your courage? Are you holding on to the hope of which we boast? That is, are you proud of the gospel? Was there a time in your life, perhaps, that the fresh glow of new faith, when you were proud and courageous, but now, with the passing of time, your proper pride, your boast, and your courage are gone? If so, God says, you must hold on to it. Focus on, hold on to Christ, our great superior apostle and high priest. Maybe you find yourself not holding on. I want to offer you right now to say, by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, right now you can cling tightly. Because He is right there. And even in your faithlessness, He is faithful. Let's pray. God, we need your faithfulness right now. God, I want to be a faithful pastor. I want to be a faithful husband. I want to be a faithful father. But in order, God, for me to be faithful, I got to see your faithfulness as so much bigger and so far greater that I would look to the faithfulness of King Jesus and I would be obedient to it. Holy Spirit, we need your help that the grace of God would endure for all of our lives and that God, our lives would shout the testimony of your grace. As we take the bread and dip in the cup after we sing this song, God, may it be a testimony of the reality of the grace given in Christ Jesus. The church says, Amen.